0: Welcome to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 20 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event podcast, Will Murray, pulp historian and author of *The New Adventures of Doc Savage*, *Pat Savage*, and *Tarzan*, discusses the dangerous dames of Maxwell Grant, including Myra Rilden, Margot Lane and Carrie Cashin. The talk was recorded on July 28, 2017, at Pulp Fest 2017, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
1: Hello, everybody. As some of you know, Anthony Tolan couldn't make it. His air conditioning, his house broke down, he couldn't leave his dogs in 95-degree heat, so he had to cancel. So I've been deputized to do his um, Dangerous Dames of the Shadow, you know, and, uh, you know, the talk, and I'll uh, well, do the best I can. I know a few things about these characters. Um, I want to start by talking about how schizophrenic Street and Smith was about female characters in the early part of the Depression. Those of you who read Doc Savage magazine stories, remember that almost every Doc Savage, Doc and Monk and Ham would meet the most gorgeous, Young woman they've ever met since the last issue and until the next, and this was a recurring uh, trope for most of the 1930s. In The Shadow, which started a couple of years earlier, they had occasional female characters, and I think they got into a little bit of trouble. In an early Shadow, I think it was The Death Tower, the shadow in disguise as uh, George Clarendon kind of romanced this. Uh, Theda-Bara type of character, uh, uh, exotic spy, and after that story, the shadow stopped having romantic entanglements, even with the enemy of, uh, you know, the gun-mall types. And then, that was in 32, in 33, there was a shadow called Road of Crime, where there was a gun-mall, Karma Usted, Who died a violent death at the end of the story, and maybe that was a little bit too much for some readers, because around 1933, suddenly female characters stop appearing in the shadow almost completely. Once in a while, someone may, some guy may have a niece who plays a role in a story, or, you know, a sister or something, but she didn't get any major characters. That often puzzled me until I. Heard uh, a tape uh, interview with Nick, not Nick, Nick Carter author, Richard Wormser, who said that the editor, John Nenevick, who edited all those magazines at that time, would, you know, read very carefully the reader fan mail and react to it. And, you know, Nick Carter, there was a problem where dime novel readers were saying, you no, our Nick Carter would never say, do, or think that, and you have to change that. And one day... Um, Wormsor was in a conference with, Nick, with uh, John Manavik over Nick Cotter, and he was told, no more girls or women in the stories. And it's like, that's kind of extreme. So he, Doc Savage was an adventure magazine. You could get away with certain things in Doc Savage. You could have dams and hells, and the press room wouldn't edit them out. But in The Shadow, you couldn't have dam or hell. Because I guess it was read by a different clientele. Audio, you know, adventure readers were more, more rough and tumble. Detective readers were more genteel. A lot more female uh, readers, because the mystery field's always been widely read by uh, women and girls. Um, so the sh- women disappeared from the shadow, and I suspect it was by editorial fiat. You know, leave them out. So for. A period up to 1936, you could hardly find a female character in the shadow, except around 35, Maybe as an antidote to this, they began running a series called uh, Grace Culver, Red Z Culver, a redheaded private detective who had a strong arm guy named Tim. I don't remember Tim's last name. But this was a female private detective. And it ran for several years. Gene Francis Webb wrote it. Gene Francis Webb was a guy. He wrote it in the name Roswell Brown. The series ran about three years, and it was apparently very popular. But one day, Gene Francis Webb turned a Gracie Culver story that was not acceptable to John Native, and he rejected it. So Gene, who I met years ago when he was alive, he, took him, he said, I'm going to take this to another publisher and see if they'll take it. And he objected, saying, no, we developed that character together, I don't want you doing that. And Gene Francis Webb said, well, I wrote this story, it's kind of my character, too. And they had a parting of the ways. And Gracie Culver stopped appearing in the back pages of The Shadow. Gene Francis Webb got the story rejected by another publisher, so he was out at Street and & Smith and that was the end of it. Well. In the front of The Shadow, around 1936 37, just as Gracie Culver was winding down, uh, there was a change in the editorial thinking on the higher levels of Street and Smith, the executive levels. Our stories are too old fashioned, some readers were saying. We need to get with the Times. Spicy Detective, Spicy Western was selling well. People had, were more open to female characters and a little bit of you know, intersexuality. So in the shadow, they began experimenting again. And you started to see female characters of different types come in, but no regular character until early in 37. Walter Gibson introduced a character named Myra Reldon, who was a federal agent. And Myra Reldon had a secret identity. She was a Chinese woman operating in Chinatown doing undercover work, and she's now called called herself Ming Duan. And in the 1937 shadow novel Teeth the Dragon, she was introduced and she was apparently popular enough that she started to reappear periodically. And it looked as if the shadow was getting a girlfriend because they hinted at a little romance there. Unfortunately, 1937 was the year Orson Welles started doing the shadow as a character on radio. It was in September of 37, uh, the first episode. Now, Walter sat down with the first scriptwriter on The Shadow, a man named Edward Hale Bierstadt. They were both Maine guys, they were up in Maine at the time. And Bierstadt did a shadow script, the first one with The Shadow and Harry Vincent, his aide. And then they cast Orson Wells, who had a baritone voice, and it was decided that The Shadow should have a female aide and not Harry Vincent to create voice contrast, a big thing on radio. So, um, the producer Clark Andrews and the script supervisor Edith Miser, who had brought Sherlock Holmes to radio and had been a feminist in the early days of uh, women getting the vote, reinvented that, revoked, revised that first script, The Death House Rescue, and got rid of Harry Vincent and put in Margot Lane. Margot Lane was named after Margot Stevenson, a famous Broadway actress at that time whom Clark Andrews, the producer, was dating. So, Edith miser supervised the revisions, may have done them herself, some of them, and she made Margot Lane an agent of the shadow in all but name. And she became a very capable character, and not the damsel in distress she later became. So, poor um, Myra Rereldin in the Pulps, you know, she popped up once in a while, but not very frequently. Meanwhile, the Shadow Radio Show took off with Lamont Cranston and Margot Lane as the leads. And by 1940, the Shadow's uh, power on radio, it, its, it's un- unqualified success in ratings, being a ratings champion, they began to talk at speak Smith about maybe we need to put Margot Lane in the stories. Walter did not want to do that. He already had Myra Alden. He thought Margot Lane by that time had been reduced to a damsel in distress character, always getting captured, always having to be rescued. Not very interesting to a writer to have to write twice a month. By that time, Edith Miser had moved on. So the capable Nancy Drew kind of Margot Lane, the one who could fire a gun, help the shadow, crash a car through a plate glass window to rescue somebody, she got Downgraded to a version of Lois Lane from Superman, always needing rescue. So uh, at one point, they just told Walter Gibson, We, we need to put Margot Lane into the magazines because people hearing the shadow on radio, picking up the magazine for the first time, would say, Where's Margot? For instance, here, where's Margo? And it was creating a problem with the new readers, but it was also creating a problem with the old readers say, what's Margot doing in our stories? She was never here before. And this was a controversy that raged for several years between the old guard who said, we don't need Margot Lane. And some of them said, we don't need women. A regular woman, anyway. A recurring character. So, Walter put her in, did the best he could. After a while, he, got, he figured a way to make her not an agent of the shadow, but kind of a Helper. And she went from being the radio shadow to more of a Walter Gibson version, radio margolin to being more of a Walter Gibson margolin who, you know, who was in on the secret of who the shadow really was, but not completely. She knew he was Cranston, but didn't know there were other identities. Uh, she got to become a major player in the shadow, but not in every issue. Because Walter still kind of put his foot down a little bit and said, you know, I want to still tell stories without that crutch of a character. He didn't. That, that's my words, not his. But I, I know that years later he kind of said, well, you know, it worked out the way it should have. And you know, he said a lot of things that said it was okay, but at the time it wasn't okay. You know, he developed these characters. He didn't want Margolin. He would have. He would have made Myra relevant. The recurrent agent if there had to be a recurring female agent. And there was one story of uh, Devil Monsters where Myra Reldon and Margolin worked together and worked against each other, and that was interesting. But as it came the war, came a new editor, the Chinatown stories were out. Margolin, Reldon and her dual identity disappeared for years, but Margot kept going. And the Gradually, during the Digest era (1943 to 48), um, if you picked up an issue of The Shadow, you were—it was a version of the radio show in all intents and purposes. You hardly ever saw anybody except Cranston, Margot Lane, uh, Commissioner Weston, the cab driver, most treatments, Shreve, as he was known on radio. And, you know, it became watered-down Shadow. Um, during this period of the radio show coming in, Street Smith, the same year as the Mark Meyer-Reldon was introduced, the same year that Red Sea Culver disappeared from the back of The Shadow, and the same year that The Shadow went on radio, they launched a magazine called Crimebusters. And the idea behind Crimebusters is that top writers, Walter Gibson, Lester Dent, and several others, would create their own characters, and they would appear in most, if not every issue, and they would think, well, you know, Readers will love this, their favorite writers writing new characters, uh, but all in one title. Unfortunately, Crime Busters didn't take off, but it did have some stars. Uh, Theodore Chinsley was one of the shadow writers who pitched it for uh, Walter Gibson through this period. And he came up with a version of Renzi Culper, I guess you could say, called Carrie and The Cash and Carrie detective. I'll explain the premise of Carrie Cashin and some of you who've never read Carrie Cashin's stories will recognize it. Carrie Cashin was a private eye detective. She had her own office. A lot of clientele would not hire a female private eye, so she hired a guy to be her front man, Alec Downs. Alec Downs pretended to be the guy in charge of the agency. Carrie was just sort of the secretary Um assistant, you know, someone who does certain kinds of work. In fact, she was the brains. It was her outfit. That's the same premise they did on TV, Remington Steel, many decades later, back in the 80s, I think it is now. Uh, And they must have got it from Carrie Cashin, because it's so obviously the same that that Ted Tinsley did with Carrie Cashin. Now, the interesting thing about Carrie Cashin, which fascinates me, you had Walter Gibson writing George the Magician stories, Lester Dent writing Click Rush the Gadget Man, and other f- Carrie Cash had always pulled at the top feature in Crime Busters, because they had a coupon in every issue, tell us your favorite stories in numerical order. Their thinking was they would spin these characters off into their own magazines. Unfortunately, Crime Busters never sold that well, and they never did that. But Carrie Cashin, the, the girl detective, lady detective, whatever you want to call her, she was the number one feature in that magazine. And she ran from 37 to 43 until to the magazine folded under its second title, a Mystery Magazine. So um, she was a kind of spit off from the shadow because it was a shadow writer. And uh, it was an attempt to do something like Grace Culver. One of the very interesting things about, things about Carrie Cashin is for a character who appeared in a magazine that didn't sell well, and she was not the cover feature all the time, she was just the most popular feature, she actually had a lot of fame in those days. I read in the old writer's magazine that, you know, on a Broadway show, somebody made a comment, in, in, in some character made a comment in a, in a play, who do you think you are, Carrie Cashin? The audience got it, you know, which you wouldn't think so. But the most amazing thing is something I discovered a few years ago. Back in 1940, 41, somewhere in there, before the war, you know, there was television broadcasting. It doesn't really survive, but they actually did a Carrie Cashew television show. It was a one episode thing, as far as I know. They never did a second one because TV wasn't the way it is now with episodic stuff uh, slotted and programmed. But there was a lost Carrie Cashin television program. Probably was never taped. Probably went out live. Probably was only broadcast in the New York City area because they didn't have network TV programming Those they had experimental TV programming, a lot of news programs, historical things. They were trying to figure out what TV would be and how it would be different from radio. So um, Carrie Cashin was actually one of the first Paul heroes to have, the, maybe the first Paul hero to have a TV show. I wish I knew more about it. I wish I knew what the script was like, and you know, but I found a mention of it, and it was like the most amazing thing I've ever discovered. Uh, anyway, Margoline continued to the almost the very end of the Shadow magazine. She had triumphed over Mara Reldon, who was a superior character in all ways. And Walter, you know, as I said, he in later years he said, Well, you know, I went along with it. I guess it worked out the way it should have worked out probably meant by that is if it kept people buying the shadow magazine that much longer when other pulp magazines folded well that was a good thing because he wanted to write shadow stories but he said many times if I had a choice I would have had a different woman on radio and I wouldn't have so used Margo like he said maybe a little if they had to use her on radio but you could tell he resented Margot, but he was a good soldier, he did what he could. Do we have any questions? That's a long speech. No questions, I covered everything perfectly. <laughs> I did a better job than Tony. <laughs> what have.
0: You might be right there. <laughs> um,
1: well, you know, uh, it, it's an interesting development that Street Smith went from no characters to many female characters and they became successful. Yes, back there. I think the joke for a long time was Margot Lane and Lois Lane were sisters or cousins at least with sisters because they, they, they fulfilled the same role the girl who got into trouble who had to be rescued I've often thought that the first time Superman ever rescued Lois Lane he must have felt like a million bucks, the second time half a million, the third time maybe five to hundred thousand and then by the 80th time it's like how do I get rid of this woman <laughs> in my life? I mean she just you know, I spent half my time rescuing her. In the end papers to, to the Doc Savage biography, Phil says that they're sisters, but he says it in a very tongue in cheek way. Yeah, I mean. Not, not in a way that's meant to be taken seriously. They, another, another interesting thing about Margot Lane that I'm remembering Tony told me about, and this is kind of bizarre. The first Margot Lane was Agnes Moorhead. A lot of you know her from Be and she was not a, a lead actress she was a character actress so when she got the role of Margot Lane who was named after Margot Stevenson the Broadway ingenue at that time um, one of the people in charge of the radio program says well look this character's named after Margot Stevenson why don't you play her like Margot Stevenson so uh, Agnes I guess more had used a Margot Stevenson voice but she was a, she left the show after a year or so, and her replacement was Margot Stevenson. So Margot Stevenson ended up playing the role that Agnes Moore had pioneered copying her. And, and Tony also told me that, you know, it's interesting because sometimes Agnes would play the Margot Lane role just the way she wanted to, and other times it was very affected to be like this Broadway actress who whose voice was apparently very well known at that time. I think she was in some movies too. The thing about Lois Lane and, and, and Margot Lane is they were very similar, they were both brunettes and they were both you know perpetually, get, they, they, their function after Edith Meiser stopped being script editor on The Shadow was basically to be a companion to the hero, get into trouble, get rescued, nearly die, over and over again. And you know, it, it, it always amazes me, The Shadow ran as a dramatic program from 37 to 54, and by 4041, it had locked into a rigid formula, and people never got tired of it. They just listened to it over and over, it was the same formula over and over, the shadow appeared twice, and near the end, he only appeared once, so they changed it slightly. But what television program could last for any length of time, telling the same stories over and over again? Half hour format is a very deadly format when you, you don't have a cast of characters and you can't change them. Another question. Pat Savage was jokingly called Tarzana? Tarzana by the office staff apparently. Was there an equivalent for Myra Reldon or a... Not that we know of. I don't think she was that type of character because Pat Savage was really a tomboy and Myra Reldon was a professional. With a double identity. So I don't think she was seen as um, quite that out of the out of the box, out of the ordinary. Pat Savage was really a, a kind of an outsized character. She she didn't act like a girl or a woman. She acted like a tomboy or a male. There used to be a there used to be a saying in the pulps, especially in westerns. You know, some Western magazines didn't want too many female characters. Others were okay, but the injunction was always, if you're going to write a woman in your story, make her a tomboy, you know, and not a real woman. In other words, they didn't want any sexual energy going on. So, you know, make, write her like a male. Just make her a tomboy. And Pat Savage was that type. She existed as a female version of a male character. She had much more male attributes, and that's why they called her Tarzana. Because she wasn't acting like, like a Margaret Langford actor or a Lois would actor or any other character who, was, who fell into the role of being the subordinate female um, character whose you know, job was to get into trouble and be rescued by the male, and maybe they would get married at the end of the story if it was a Western, and maybe not. That answers your question, I'm sure big question. All right, I think we got to start setting up for show. the show. What
0: show? I'm done? Audio. Yeah, you're done. All right. Let's hear some applause. Big answer. Well, we jumped in, you know, two days ago, and Tony had to cancel, unfortunately. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the Pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2017.